I'm Meg Wallitzer. I sat down with the outspoken and protean Mona El-Tahawi, who, no surprise, took our conversation in many different directions. Mona, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me, Meg. Ten years ago, Newsweek named you one of the 150 fearless women of 2012. I am curious, are you fearless or do you just do brave things and is there a difference? You know, I don't wake up in the morning and think, today I will be fearless or today I will be brave. I just wake up in the morning and whatever enrages me that day, I rant and rave about and and write about it. And if it happens to be fearless and brave, then fantastic. And I hope it inspires and incites others to find their way to be fearless and brave. It clearly does. It's clearly done that and it seems to be continuing to do that. But you say that Am I Not Brave is the leitmotif or refrain of your essays. And I love this. It almost sounds like a mantra that you might say to yourself in very challenging moments. Is that right? Is it a reminder to yourself? I say that the personal is much more dangerous than the political. You know, we're used to that mantra, the personal is political. Of course it is. But for so many of us, the personal is much more dangerous and much more silencing that wondering what will people say. And I say in my writing that this question, what will people say, is worse than the state security services in Egypt or the CIA or the KGB or anything that we think of that surveys us and limits us in any way, because it's like a constant agent or police officer just, you know, sitting on our brain saying, you can't say that, you can't say that. Yeah, because if you're self-censoring, then you've absorbed it, right? It's like in your skin, it's in your body in some way. It's so insidious. And that silencing comes from shame. In that essay, actually, you talk about courage and you say it wilts and withers when it's not challenged like muscles that need heavier weights. Uh, can you talk about that? That leitmotif of am I not brave? And yeah. I, I go through a list of things that I've done to basically tell myself, yes, I am brave. Of course I am. But like I say, it's like when you first start working out and you lift like, you know, two pound weights. But then after a while, your muscles need to be challenged. So you go up to five pounds and then 10 pounds and then Oh, 15. maybe you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying my best, Meg. <laughs> but if you just stick to the two pounds, then your muscles would just become lazy. And so I consider the muscle behind courage, whatever we We want it to be our heart, our mind, our soul, whatever we think of, that source of power that drives our courage. It also needs to be challenged. I think a lot of women are looking for those heavier weights. What kind of advice do you give women? Do they often come to you for advice? So many times. I had a feeling. Yeah. And, you know, I take it as a responsibility and with great gratitude because I know what it's like to be a younger person who finds inspiration through an older person. And then and they make you ask, how did they get to that stage? And I tell them very honestly, I wasn't born like this. You know, I wasn't born saying, fuck the patriarchy. I didn't come out of my mother's womb saying that. It took me years and years and years of work as a journalist, as a feminist, as an activist So I tell them, challenge yourself every day through what I call feminism in 3D. You know, we think of three dimensions. So my Mm -hmm. three dimensions are defy, disobey, and disrupt the patriarchy. So I say to them, find every day ways to do that, no matter how small, because the small ones will be the two pound weights. And then you'll say, wow, oh God, I I just shut someone down who said a sexist joke. And then promote yourself to the five pounds, to the 15 pounds, and see how much courage you can accrue through feminism in 3D. Wow. 
you talk about the patriarchy sometimes as being this thing that's all around us so that we can't necessarily recognize it. Yeah, I say talking about patriarchy is like asking a fish what is water. The fish is going to say, what are you talking about? Because water yeah. is just, it's everything. And so I've begun to describe patriarchy so that people can understand just how all-encompassing it is. I tell them I want you to imagine an octopus. And the head of the octopus is patriarchy. And each one of the eight tentacles is one of the oppressions that patriarchy uses to privilege male dominance. Because I think people often think patriarchy is men. And I tell them it's not men. And I'm not the only feminist who says it's not men. And there are women who benefit from patriarchy. So I want them to imagine it as that system of institutions and oppressions that privilege male dominance and also privilege some women. And each one of those tentacles, depending on where you are, can be misogyny, white supremacy, capitalism, homophobia, ableism, ageism. And because intersectionality undergirds my feminism, because I'm a woman of color, because I'm queer, because I'm of Muslim descent, all of that, all those tentacles are a form of describing intersectionality. And I want people to imagine the person who is most strangled by those eight tentacles. And when we can free that person who is most strangled and suffocated by the eight tentacles, then we free all of us. We have to strive for collective liberation rather than individual liberation. Do you feel free? I do I feel free? That is a great question. I like to think I'm free, but I know that there are many other things that keep me from being free. I like to say that I've spent the past decade liberating myself by saying all the things that I haven't been able to say. This Mona, who I used to be, she died and bequeathed me the silences that she had held on to. And she said, okay, live and say all the things that I couldn't say. So I'm increasingly freer. There's still more freedom that I want. It's like a bucket that goes back in and it's self-replenishing, right? When you talk about that, I'm thinking about writers, actually. It's a different kind of saying it. How was it hosting that night of dangerous women? I mean, I keep thinking about that evening. And you told a story about Nawal el-Sadawi. Did I pronounce her correctly? Can you talk about her and yes. her importance to you? Yeah, the Egyptian feminist Nawal el-Sadawi, who sadly passed away last year. I didn't meet her until I was a journalist in Cairo in my 20s. But I met her when I saw her on television when I was 13 years old. So I was born in Egypt to an Egyptian family. And we moved to London when I was seven. My parents are doctors and they got scholarships to get their PhDs, both of them, in London. And we were watching a BBC documentary about Egypt. And on the screen comes on this woman with bright white hair. And she's so bold and so confident and speaks so assuredly. And I was like, my goodness, who is that? And very soon after she spoke, this Egyptian man comes on and he says, this Nawal al-Sadawi is ruining the reputation of Egypt. And I was like, oh, my God, how can one woman ruin the reputation of an entire country? I want that. <laughs> I want to do that. She shows us basically how to ruin the reputation of patriarchy. And I love to quote a line from one of her most famous novels, Woman at Point Zero, in which the protagonist who's standing trial, she's a sex worker who's about to be executed executed for killing her pimp. And the men who are the judges in her trial say to her, you are a dangerous and savage woman. And she replies, the truth is dangerous and savage, and I am telling the truth. And I love that. I want to be dangerous and savage. There's that famous Audre Lorde quote, women are powerful and dangerous. How important are mentors to you currently? 
absolutely important. I mean, in both of the books that I've written, I've mentioned several other activists, and many of them are older women. So the one I wrote, um, Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution, I focused on mentors in the region where I was born. In The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, I focus on more global mentors and older women. So I quote Audre Lorde, I quote June Jordan, I quote Gloria Anzaldúa. And they're so important because they show us those older women basically destroying the reputation of patriarchy. You know, we talk about the crone figure and how powerful she is. And one of the things that we recognize as we get older as women is that patriarchy makes us out to be undesirable and ugly and, you know, beyond our whatever. Because we step into this power, we know that we become more and more powerful and shameless the older we get. And it's like the reverse. Patriarchy tries to strip us of that power. And this is where ageism comes in and holds on to misogyny in a way to make us irrelevant because it recognizes that we're becoming more and more powerful. The story, The Yellow Wallpaper, which you presented that fabulous night at Dangerous Women, you know, is really about, well, it's about power and suppression what are your feelings about that story? Did you just read it for the first time then? Yeah, so I was brand new to the Yellow Wallpaper. Oh, that's great. I had not read it. And Carrie Coon's reading that night was just incredible. Yeah, how would you describe that reading? It was, you know, a mixture of surreal and horrific and just so ordinary. It was like you're sitting there listening to someone tell you an experience they had. And the more they go on, the more you realize oh my goodness, this person is having a breakdown. This woman is having a breakdown. And Carrie just conveyed that so wonderfully. It it was just listening to her made me tingle. Actors are incredible. Now I'd like you to do a 10-point critical analysis with quotes from the story, please. (laughs) (laughs) As if, Meg. (laughs) No, no, no. There is no pressure on our show. It is a relaxing place for conversation. It's like a bar without drinks or ambiance, basically. (laughs) Yeah, it's really different reading a story versus listening to it. And I think writers can learn from actors giving readings. I mean, you're clearly very performative. You've got that in your soul. Did that happen as you sort of transformed in some way? Well, you know, I wanted to be an actor when I was a child. So ah. this is, I think, where it comes in, you know. It was just like I channel it. Were you in school plays? Oh, God, all What the were you time. in? What were you oh, in? everything from Shakespeare to just renditions of anything. What I was your best it. role? What was your... The role that they're still talking about. Oh, God, I wish. (laughs) My memory's so bad now. But I remember I did something from, I think it was Midsummer Night's Dream. I can't remember now, Meg. I'm just so old now. I can't remember. But I loved it. That your puck was fantastic. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Just going back for one second to Charlotte Perkins Gilman. The story is a feminist classic, but you say that Gilman held some views that were terrible. What do we do with that more generally? Is this something that you're thinking about, continuing to read pieces by writers who have, you know, made disturbing comments or held disturbing views that only come to light later? How does it change the writing? Do you have a one-size-fits-all attitude about it, or mm-hmm. what do you think? It's something that I, I struggle with with many writers. One of my favorite poets was Pablo Neruda, and then I discovered that he raped the domestic worker in his home in India. And I was really, really taken aback when I learned that because I used to love quoting him. His poetry was this wonderful mix of revolution and love and passion that, you know, I like to think Mm -hmm. I infuse my life with. And I haven't quoted him on social media since because I'm still sitting with this really, really disturbing and hugely problematic aspect of his personal life. You know, and he won a Nobel Prize and he's considered, you know, Chile's revolutionary poet and, and all of that. So I bring that same kind of disturbance and challenge to the Yellow Wallpaper and Charlotte Gilman because while I recognize 
how important it is to read this text for what it was telling us. You know, the medical male establishment, patriarchy, you know, with all the power that it had, symbolized by her husband in the story. And it reflected something that happened in her life because she had postpartum depression. And much like the character in The Yellow Wallpaper, she was prescribed this quote-unquote rest cure or restorative cure, which I also learned Virginia Woolf and so many others had also been prescribed because it was this really famous doctor who basically told women just sit there and do nothing and try also to not even think. So don't draw, don't write, don't do anything, just sit there. You know, sit still and look pretty, basically. Mm. And of course it didn't work. And so I can take that aspect of the story and extrapolate to the various ways that the medical establishment to this day continues to hurt women and queer people. And I'm thinking in the United States, especially today, of something like black maternity mortality rates, you know? There's a straight line from what she was talking about in the yellow wallpaper about how the medical establishment can harm you to what is happening in the United States today. But then we also have to take the context of her other work. She was a eugenicist, she was a racist, and she refused to identify as a feminist. I also very recently learned that at the age of 19, she fell in love with a woman and she wanted to spend the rest of her life with a woman. And so I I can see all the ways that her work can represent something we can continue to say, look, go and read this. But it must be, especially today in the United States, with so much white supremacy and so much anti-blackness and so much discussion around white feminism and how white feminism has to be held accountable. We have to place her in that context. You know, I was reading you uh, with great pleasure late at night, and I sort of went down this feminist rabbit hole, I guess, going from one thing to another in that way that we do online. I'm sure you do, too. And one place sparks an interest and you go someplace else. And I started doing almost like a little feminist history tourism late at night. And it was very nostalgic and kind of moving, but also sort of enraging. And I read, I wonder if you know this piece, and I'd love to recommend it to you, this fantastic piece in The New Yorker from 2013 by Susan Faludi, and it was on Shulamith Firestone's Radical Feminism. Yes. Oh, good. Oh, good. Good. So she had died some months earlier. She was a radical feminist and author of the feminist classic, The Dialectic of Sex. She was a powerful figure in second wave feminism, and she came to suffer from mental illness. And the piece was about her fire and power, I guess her dangerous woman status. But it was also about the chaos of her life brought on by her illness. And I felt so moved thinking about women who've consistently put themselves out there again and again. And Kate Millett, another radical feminist, told Faludi, referring to her own book versus Firestone's, I was taking on the obvious male chauvinist. Shuley was taking on the whole ball of wax. What she was doing was much more dangerous. And that word keeps coming up again. But I was also moved because there's a description of all these different radical feminist publications back in the 70s and a vibrant radical presence and a sense of changing the world and then a sense of it all falling away. Mm. And Faludi describes what happened to that group of women. And the stories she said include painful solitude, poverty, infirmity, mental illness, and even homelessness. And she quotes a couple of lines from a Kate Millett essay. She says, we haven't helped each other much. We haven't been able to build solidly enough to have created community or safety. And that, of course, was very moving and very, very sad. And I was wondering, that's a long way of asking you, what's your community like? It's a really important question. You know, so many of these icons of ours have talked about how dangerous it is to be who they are and the risks that they take. I'm reminded of Bell Hooks. She wrote a book, I read it in 2014, called Remembered Rapture on the Writer's Life, I think it was called. And in an essay that she wrote in that book called Women Who Write Too Much, she reminds us that we have to write too much. And she quotes Annie Dillard saying, write as if you were dying. And she says, you know, we've lost so many black feminists at a really young 
young age, Lorraine Hansberry, June Jordan, Audrey Lord, you know, and I put them in community with Shonamith Firestone and others who have known the stress and the pain and the danger of being feminists or queer, the challenges that they represented to patriarchy. So I consider them my community, my community of elders and icons and mentors. And then I feel a sense of community in Ireland that I rarely feel in many quote-unquote Western countries because I feel that the activists that I know there who were involved in marriage equality and successfully repealed the Eighth Amendment that banned abortion in Ireland, they understand where I come from and I consider them community because they fought against the Catholic Church in the way that I fight against organized religion where I come from. They're much more honest about patriarchy than the United States is and they're much more honest about the role of religion than the United States. Is because I find the Irish were able to point at the way the Catholic Church basically just had an influence over everything from education to politics to geopolitics in a way that I, I find I have to shake my community in the United States into realizing. I believe we're at a threshold in the US of a theocracy established by white evangelicals that I find many of my feminist community in the US are not vocal enough about because this theocracy is being built by white Christians and white and Christian in this country country are considered the norm and the default and not dangerous, whereas my community in Ireland recognize the danger of white Christian Catholics. So I'm saying that by way of basically conveying that my community changes and I gather different strengths and powers from the various communities I'm in, but I also like to think that I challenge my community as well. I sometimes say I'm like a bumblebee. I go to various places and pick up pollen that then I just kind of leave in various other places hoping that it will blossom into these challenges. That's a great answer. Do you feel pessimistic? I mean, you're describing frightening scenarios and frightening things ongoing right now. And I've been reading you and feeling the passion of it and the fear in it as well. I want to bring this back a little bit toward literature. Can you feel hopeful in some ways when you're reading? I'm not pessimistic at all. I've never been a pessimist. I'm not a pessimist or a cynic. I'm tenaciously optimistic. And it's that tenacity that I take into my reading and my writing. So writing and reading have always been central to my feminism. And I hope to share that fire through my writing so that someone who perhaps is feeling a bit pessimistic reads me. And I think like number one in The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls is anger. Because I find that without that anger, without what June Jordan calls the justification of our rage, none of the other sins would be possible. But it's just the beginning. So I don't want people to start and end with anger. I want them to start with anger, but then move on to the other things. So I'm tenaciously optimistic. I want people to be enraged. And I'm optimistic at this time, too, because I think that more and more people are seeing what is happening, are more aware of this octopus that I call patriarchy, are more aware of the dangers of this time, and I hope much more ready to fight. How can fiction be part of that? Is fiction generally political in your view? The fiction that I go towards is political. I recently compiled a list for my patrons on Patreon called Books About Abortion That Aren't The Handmaid's Tale. And I love The Handmaid's Tale. I read The Handmaid's Tale many, many years ago, of course. But I worry sometimes that The Handmaid's Tale, for a lot of white American readers especially, represented something that was so alien to the lives that they're leading that they were able to kind of push it aside and just say, oh, that's not the world we live in. This will never happen. I wonder now if that's why people mostly white American women are so shocked that Roe v. Wade is about to be overturned and abortion in many places is about to become illegal again. So I worry sometimes about dystopia in the ways that it can make us comfortable with today and that many people don't take its warnings about how 
that tomorrow that you're seeing is your today, but I'm just presenting it in a more horrific way. So the novel that I found was a much more gripping portrayal of abortion becoming illegal is Red Clocks by Lenny Zumas. Yeah, that's a great book. I read that. I love that book because it was very much in the today, in an America that people today could recognize, about Mm -hmm. five women in a fictional town in Oregon. And it just so happens that a Christian fundamentalist president was voted into office and he promised he would ban abortion, and he does. And I find that book is a much more kind of bracing look. This is where we are, which is where we are today. Do you have a novel in you? Oh, my gosh. Fem- fiction terrifies me. I'm in awe what? of fiction Wait authors. This is bringing it all around now. <laughs> Dangerous women and you're afraid. Yeah. I'm, wow. Is that about shame, though? Going back to what we we're saying at the beginning about putting it out there and I, I mean, what I, people I don't know. think of you? Because I've been breaking more and more silences, I'm kind of like, you know, what else? So it, it, it's less well, about shame. May I offer that? That's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to do. It's a challenge that yeah. I should take on one of these days. So I think it's much more of like, well, do I know how to do that? So maybe mm-hmm. one of these days, Meg, I don't know. Do you run a, a writing workshop that I can take? <laughs> give me a call. Give me a call. Speaking of literature, I came up with a game because I'm obsessed with games, and I'm sorry, and you probably hate games, but very, very quickly, lightning round here. Related to the theme of danger, you're going to have to guess the title that I'm coming up with, okay? This title of a classic feminist novel from 1973 could be restated as Anxiety About Eating Peanuts in the Sky. Oh, Fear of Flying. Yes, excellent. Mm, very good job. Okay, really good. Okay, I'll do two more. This French novel was made first into a French film and then into a Stephen Frears film starring Glenn Close and John Malkovich. It could be restated as Treacherous Entanglements. Uh, le, le Liaison Dangerous, you something like that. Cooking. That's absolutely <laughs> right. And now the bonus round. And if you get this right, Mona, we are going to give you a set of beautiful patio furniture, a Whirlpool washer dryer, and a trip to Hawaii on a Pan Am flight, you know, which hasn't existed for a long time. <laughs> All the great 1970s game show prizes. Okay, listen closely. The number of samurai in a movie, urgent misdeeds for female of all ages. The number of samurai in a movie? Seven. Yes. Oh, seven samurai. Yeah, okay, okay. so seven. Seven, so seven, okay. Seven, and now urgent. Seven, what's another word for urgent? Oh, my gosh. I'll give you a hint. Pressing. Necessary. Oh, okay, seven necessary. Misdeeds for female of all. This would be for women and girls. (laughs) My own book. This is your book. (laughs) The answer was your book title. Anyway... Pan Am, here I come. (laughs) Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls. Thank you so much, Mona. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Meg.